Welcome along. It is Niall Boylan. And today we're going to talk about the C word. No, not that one. But the other C word, which is equally as offensive, I suppose, at this stage. COVID-19. We almost forget what we went through for two and a half years in this country. Ireland had the second longest lockdown in the world. Second longest amount of restrictions. Even Leo Varadkar only recently said the last lockdown over the Christmas period was probably unnecessary. Ira Cummins was on before Christmas talking to us and he told us that it was completely unnecessary. In fact, he went as far as to say that most of the lockdowns were completely unnecessary. Well, I decided we'd have a bit of a debate today about it because I received an email from Dermot Dorgan. And Dermot Dorgan is a risk analyst and also a former member of ISAG. And I said to Dermot we'd invite him on the show because he wasn't too happy with some of the points that Ivor made and believed they were incorrect. So both of the gentlemen join me today, Dermot Dorgan and Ivor Cummins. A good afternoon, gentlemen, to both of you. There you go. You're up. Okay, Dermot, firstly, let, let's let's go through the email. I, I'll just read a bit of it, if you're okay with that. And it mentions, obviously, that you emailed me a couple of times. And I do apologise if I didn't pick up on your email the first time around, by the way. But sometimes we get quite a lot of emails, and maybe I miss them, or maybe I just ignore them sometimes. And you didn't get a response. Now, you said, I just listened to your conversation with Ivor Cummins from December. It was a painful experience listening to so many falsehoods and misinterpretations of the data, as well as the pure cringe coming out of Ivor, but I managed to make it through to the end. Well, I'm glad you did, Dermot. And Ivor, I'm sure, is delighted with that. But okay, so Dermot, what in fact were the problems you had with what Ivor said? We we talked about the fact that Ivor made the point that he didn't believe the lockdowns were necessary. He believed that within a three-month period, uh, we had the data we needed to understand exactly the mortality rate when it came to COVID-19 and we completely overreacted and protected the wrong group of people. So what what was the point that you made or what was the point that you believed he misinterpreted? I think I think it's hard to to take each point one by one and we'd be here all day if I did. I, I think it's, I'd like to give my perspective, which is that we had 20 years to prepare for this. We had many warnings from experts, from professionals, from Mother Nature herself between the first H5N1 case in humans in 97, um, SARS, MERS, uh, the swine flu, Zika. We had all of these warnings and each one was an opportunity for us to learn. And of course we didn't do that. We did nothing at all. We wrote some papers and we went to conferences and we shook hands for the photos and all that kind of stuff. But actually none of the work was done. So when COVID came along in the 1st of January 2020, we were completely unprepared. And as the old saying goes, we don't uh, we don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. And uh, we had nothing in place. And rather than reacting with any kind of competence, we, we basically sat around and did nothing. And the policymakers did nothing. The experts failed to provide expert warnings. Well, we did do something, didn't we? We closed down the whole country is what we did, essentially. In March. Right, January and February, we had all that time in the world. There was warnings everywhere, if but we weren't paying attention to them. We weren't listening. We were just thought, oh, that's just that's just one of those things that happens over there. It'll never go over here, you know. Uh, but it did, and we were completely unprepared. So that period of January and February, there was a lot happening around the world. None of it was being reported in the Irish media, uh, but there was a lot going on. There was a lot we could have learned from. Um, but instead, we just sat around, navel gazing, doing the usual thing, looking to the EU for advice. Are the EU going to do anything? You weren't doing anything. Sophie Gale weren't going to do anything. And in that in that void of you know, it was kind of in the absence of a plan. Um, we ended up by the time we got to, to to March, things had gotten out of hand. We didn't really know where we were. We hadn't done much testing. We had very little data to work from. And so, uh, I kind of the lockdown kind of became an inevitability at that point. Okay, but the first sign that we we kind of 
went into a bit of a panic, of course, was the uh, the the football the footballers returning from the Italy match. I know nothing about sports, so I have no idea what it was, but it was something to do with Italy. I know that, and of course, the problems they had in Italy, and the problems they had in Italy was probably an overaction to some degree because they were putting everybody into hospital and ignoring older people who were really greatly at risk in the northern region of Italy. Then came St Patrick's Day and the demand on social media that we close the pubs. And then, of course, there was famous steps in Washington where Leo Varadkar said we were essentially closing down the country and flattening the curve for two weeks. We then saw two weeks extended to two and a half years. Um, so for a lot of people, including Ivor Commons and many other experts that I spoke to on the radio at the time, that within two or three months, which is a very short period of time compared to two and a half years, we had a fair idea that the mortality rate wasn't, in fact, as high as we thought it was. And it was primarily affecting people over the age of 70. So why did we overreact? Or in your view, did we overreact then by, okay, you're pointing out the mistakes, you know, made in January or February. Let's go to March and move on to the summer. Did we, by continuing those lockdowns right through, when realistically, you know, when we were hearing figures on a regular basis, it was people dying with COVID, not from COVID. And the majority of those people tended to be over the age of 65 people who may have otherwise been at end of life and possibly dying. I mean, most people at end of life generally die from a respiratory virus or heart attack or something or cancer or whatever it happens to be. Did we overreact? No, I mean, this is where our kind of, our sort of worldviews clash really is that for me, everything happened in January. Everything that needed to happen happened in, in, in or didn't happen in January and February. It's it's like, you know, epidemics are like fire. You know, when it's a pan fire and it's in, it's, you know, it's in your kitchen and you throw a, um, a blanket over the top of it, that's the end of it. But if you don't do anything and you let it grow and grow and grow, it'll take over the house, the neighborhood, etc. So there was a lot of stuff happening in January and February that simply didn't make it into the Irish media, or if it did, people didn't understand the significance of it. So there were risks around human to human transmission. If if you go back and you look at January and you take it day by day, you'll see that there was there were all these risk factors, like for example, the um human to human transmission, not knowing whether it was transmitting from human to human or not and that was a huge difference because if it wasn't translating or transmitting from human to human then unless you happen to be in you know a wet market in wuhan as we thought at the time you were you had very little risk however it turned out it was human to human transmission in which case everybody in the world was at risk because it can trans it can um travel from one side of the world to the other in under 48 hours so that was a really significant issue and a really significant debate and the who got it wrong and they delayed and they cost us another few weeks of, of reaction time so you know, the, the kind of the stuff you're, you're saying to me about, you know, February and March, like that's all downstream. That's all stuff that happens. They're all consequences of us not dealing with the problem when we had the opportunity. You can't turn back the clock, Dermot, unfortunately. And I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. And I, I'm assuming, and, and sure. many people have said it, that many people between December and March probably died of COVID-19. We just didn't recognise it. We just didn't take the data. We didn't establish it. We didn't do the testing then at any stage. Mind you, we had a situation going back the year before that where 500 people in that year had died of the flu. So it was quite common for us to lose a lot of our population. Well, somewhere between three and 500 of a respiratory virus at that time of the year. It wasn't uncommon. It is. I mean, the, the, again, it comes back to the you know the preparation. If we had been preparing over the last twenty years, if we had put the systems in place, particularly with respect to things like surveillance, we would have picked that up a lot sooner. I, I spoke to someone who worked in infectious disease in in a hospital, and she said to me that yeah, there were people there were people dying in Ireland in, in December of flu like symptoms. They didn't know what it was. Now, if we had put the, the the bright system surveillance testing in place around that time, we would have found us. And, and this is true of the world. You know, COVID had something like a ten to to fifteen week head start on the world before it was it was discovered in. in in late December, or it was announced mm-hmm. to the world in late December. So a lot of this stuff comes back to things that we didn't do 
in over the last 20 years. And that we could have, this isn't Monday morning quarterbacking. I mean, some countries did do some of this and they did benefit from it. Um, but all of the problems that you're kind of raising there about not being able to see it, we had the chance to put the systems in place and we didn't do it. And so if we're going to have this conversation or we're going to have a conversation in the future about what we do next time and how we do better and what we learn from this, that's a huge area that we need to discuss and that we need to understand. Because the sooner we find these things, you know, an exponential variable is exponential on the way down too. So the more time that you can save in finding these things, in identifying them as soon as possible, the smaller it's going to be when you do and the easier it's going to be to deal with it. And then it can become something that that gets taken care of within the public health infrastructure, in the background, without anyone in society having to be, you know, to even know okay. about it. And just before I go to Ivor, you pointed out everything we did wrong. And I'm not going to disagree with a lot of it, by the way. Uh, you pointed out what we did wrong, but we went wrong. And that's the bottom line. So then as a member or former member of ISAG at the time who were calling for the kind of zero COVID throughout the whole thing, well, certainly towards the latter half of it anyway. I mean, realistically, at that point, even though, as you pointed out already, we should have identified it earlier, we should have been able to tackle it earlier, we should have been able to not put uh, older people from hospitals back into nursing homes, we should have recognised all of that and those mistakes, and that hopefully will come out some sort of COVID inquiry, although nobody's ever going to get the blame for it. I mean, the lockdowns going forward then, do you believe they should have lasted two years? Yeah, again, I mean, the you basically the, the way I see it is is just lockdown was the only button that Tony Holland knew how to press, and he just kept pressing it over and over again. That's that's basically. So I you know, easily agree with you. Agree with Ivor on that point. That was completely oh, unnecessary. I mean, you know, if you thought ISAG were annoying to have to listen to in the media, they were annoying. Well, imagine what it was like being in those meetings when you're you're just getting ignored over and over again. What I would say is, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff around that time that, you know, obviously my perspective is we nip it in the bud. You don't have to deal with these down, downstream problems. But if we do go to, say, the end of, of June when that, you know, the lockdown was being lifted, they lifted it without any kind of a plan at all. And so it just became inevitable that we would go back to, to lockdowns because, as I said, that was the only button that they knew how to press. And it was it was the easiest thing for the, for the government to do or for Neffet to do because all the burden was borne by the people. They didn't have to do anything. The guardie had to enforce it as well. But really, if, you know, they didn't have to do anything and if it went wrong, then they could just blame the people. You know, so it, it was just it was it was again, it was lockdown filled the void in place of intelligence and research and analysis, whatever conclusions you come to there. Lockdown just kind of filled the void. I, I have my own ideas about what we could have done at that time. And and to be to, to be fair, like there were bits of the, the great Barrington declaration that probably would have been better for me. I mean, I was in my 30s, so. You know, it would have worked out all right. I, I interviewed them on the radio at the time. I was actually one of the only ones that actually interviewed them on the radio at the time. I think everybody else is afraid to do it. Let me just go to Ivor Commons. Ivor, do you essentially agree then? I mean, I, I don't see too much of that you're actually disagreeing on, maybe apart from the, the latter half. But it, do you agree with Dermot saying that if we had to identify it earlier, we wouldn't have had to press the lockdown button? Okay, well, I'll run through the points made. I just jotted them down here. That's probably a good structure. So we said that, uh, or I heard, that there was no work done, there was no preparation. We kind of came into this blind uh, at the start of 2020. Uh, actually, there was a full pandemic management plan in the UK. Ireland even had one. And the World Health Organization, I printed it out here, had a massive document that I downloaded in April. And uh, it's everything about managing pandemics. However, all of those plans were completely thrown in the trash after Neil Ferguson's modeling came out, which was proven to be absurd. And they dumped all the plans and they actually followed China. That's a fact. You can argue about what the motivations were. So actually, there were loads of plans 
but nothing was done about them. They were thrown in the trash and they yeah, followed. But we were seeing videos. I mean, I even as a presenter was getting WhatsApp messages with people falling dead on the streets in China. So, I mean, I was looking at the same thing. I'm, I'm assuming Leo Varadkar was looking at and Simon Harris at the time his Minister of Health was looking at and going, Jesus, this is bad. Yeah, but remember the New York Times covered that China had around 20,000 Twitter bots out trying to drive uh, Italy into lockdown. So there's a lot of shenanigans coming from China, as you might expect. You know, they have their own uh, motivations. Uh, but Diamond Princess, this is the key point on that one. Diamond Princess in February 2020, uh, Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Prize winner in mathematical modeling, etc., perfectly placed, uh, raised this. And I saw the same thing, not to compare myself to him, but my wife asked me in early March, should we get masks? And I said, why? And she said, well, this COVID thing. And I said, no, it's going to have a severe flu impact and it'll be the elderly. Because Diamond Princess, at 3,700 people, if there was mega spread, arguably maximum spread, on a ship with shared air conditioning, no measures, they got around 25% positivity. That's just in PCR. You're going to have a lot more that doesn't come up in the test. And they basically had a few people in their late 70s and late 80s died in the following weeks. And no one of the 2,600 crew that were not aged were affected at all. So you actually had that Petri ship and you actually had, and I knew that these numbers would roughly roll out across the world, depending on the level of metabolic disruption in a given population and the age demographic. And that's exactly what happened. The WHO last year, the OECD, they all published the excess mortality and it essentially mirrored the Diamond Princess and the data we had in February 2020. Yes, See, I'm, and- I, well, I, I, I'm actually confused because, Dermot, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with anything Ira said, and I'm certainly not disagreeing with anything you said about the preparation, although Ira disagrees with some of it, right? But I'm confused as to what points. I mean, you sent the email because you disagreed with Ivor and you disagreed essentially what he's saying. But you kind of are saying the same thing that the only button they had to press was lockdown and that wasn't what we should have done. There were other ways around this and, you know, and it was the elderly primarily who were going to be affected by it. So really, so what is the point directly that you're disagreeing with Ivor on? Well, yeah, yeah, a couple of points there in his in his last answer. I mean, I think we're both agreed that, you know, what Nevitt did was, was not clever. Um, we completely depart, though, on what should have happened and we also depart on the analysis. So, I've referenced, I think, the WHO's 2019 paper on uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, you're familiar with the expression, correlation is not causality, right? I think most people are. It can be it's easier to say than it is. Yeah, I think everyone in general, you, you, Ivor, I'm sure, Niall, yeah. the listeners, I think, I think everybody's kind of familiar with that idea. Um, there's another expression from, from um, statistics called absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So in layman's terms, there's a difference between, you know, us not having evidence of something or us not being able to see it. That's not the same as it, proof that it's not there. So if you look at the 2019 WHO paper, throughout that paper, they say over and over again, we have very little data. We have very little evidence. We have very little to work from. Many of the studies in that paper are simulation studies for that reason. And it makes sense because you can't, first of all, we have no long-term data on pandemics because we were only collecting data from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, two, you can't do experiments on pandemics because you can't see the pandemic in one country and then, you know, get half the countries to do border controls or lockdown and then half the countries not. Those kind of experiments just can't be done. So it's not actually possible to do the kind of scientific research that that 
Ivor's talking about it all the time. It, it simply can't be done and it isn't done. And so if you look at that, um, if you look at that WHO paper, throughout the paper, they say, we don't have a lot of information, right? But we're going to give it our best guess regardless. And sometimes they guess right and sometimes they guess wrong. But what Ivor's done in his interpretation of that paper, he's completely confused an absence of evidence for evidence of absence. And that's and that's true for, for okay. many. I mean, I've got some of the quotes here. Okay, well, 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 let, let Ivor just respond to that. You're confusing it, Ivor. I, and and I mean, look, everybody has their own theory and the hypothesis of the way things works, and I accept that. But but you're confusing this, Ivor. You're kind of jumping the gun a little bit there. Yeah, that's a hundred percent incorrect. So just as a bit of background, if people don't know, I'm thirty years in complex problem solving. That's statistical in, or inference, root cause analysis, comparative analysis, Kepner Trago, and it basically makes the point that was just made by Dermot just trivial. We have lived and breathed correlation, not causation, for a whole career. So, to be honest, the WHO guidelines, and they say here on track and trace, which in fairness, Dermot seems to only think that track and trace could have been done better, and the other stuff was rubbish, so we do agree on that. But it said it is not recommended active contact cap or active contact tracing because there is no obvious rationale for it. Now, they had decades, countless papers, countless teams working with many pandemic-type scenarios that did occur, not big ones, and they came up with no obvious rationale. So to actually try and do things that you've spent decades studying and realize there's nothing there would be ridiculous. Remember, what we actually did was not only ignored all of that, all of that knowledge amassed for decades. But we vote fast, dumped all the knowledge, and copied China. Now, where is the evidence for copying China, I would ask? I mean, I mean, David, to be fair, when you talk about coronation and causation, many times, scientifically, we do take coronation seriously because we realize that coronation can lead to causation. We just don't have the evidence to prove it yet. So in many occasions, you know, we have said there's a strong possibility that when this happens, this is going to happen. We don't understand exactly why yet, but we know it's there. I mean, that's correlation. It's not causation, but we do take it seriously and we use that data. So that can be used. The the, the point I was making, I I was just using that as an introduction point. I'm not saying that correlation versus causality is the mistake that was made here. I was just using that as an intro to the mistake that was made, which is absence of evidence versus evidence of absence. Now, in the case of contact tracing, can I read out the, the rest of the quotes of what the WHO yeah, sure, yeah, said about yeah, contact tracing? Yeah, yeah. There are few studies on the effectiveness of contact tracing. The effectiveness of contact tracing cannot be assessed from these studies. Evidence of greater strength is needed. Contact tracing combined with other interventions is effective in reducing influenza transmission in the community, but the effect of contact tracing alone is unknown. And then they say, uh, Ivers quote, active contact tracing is not recommended in general because there's no obvious rationale for it. It's completely confused paper. The, the WHO have confused a lack of information, a lack of data, a lack of research with proof that it doesn't work. And can I just say on contact tracing, we use contact tracing effectively during SARS, during MERS. It was used effectively during COVID-19 by some countries. Um, and it'll be used effectively in the future. To say that contact tracing doesn't work because we don't have 
randomized control studies on it is like saying that telling a carpenter that hammers don't work or that saws don't work because we don't have randomized control trials on them. We don't, but they still work. You don't need science. You don't need randomized control trials to understand some things. You don't need a scientist to tell you how to butter bread or to make a cup of tea. There are things you can know without a scientist or a Tomas Wright or Ivor Cummins or whoever else there to tell you. Um, and yeah, and I think I, I nearly shuddered. You mentioned Tomas Ryan there. I nearly shuddered for a second there. Tomas yeah. Ryan, of course, is the same man okay. who suggested that COVID nineteen was causing autism in the unborn child at one stage, which was crazy. Um, but I mean, when you were with ISAG, I mean, you said you felt voiceless to some degree, or you felt that you couldn't say anything, or nobody was listening to you. Why did you hang out with them, or why did you stay with them when everybody knew? Well, most logical people knew that ISAG had gone completely over the top. Um, they were even worse than Neffin in some of the suggestions they were making, particularly towards the probably the second quarter uh, of COVID-19, calling for zero COVID and worse restrictions and all sorts of things. I mean, they were demanding that we didn't take away the restrictions. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I didn't join ISAG as such. I reached out to a guy called Yadir Bar-Yam, who I'd heard on a podcast, and we got talking, and then he added me to a group, and that group happened to be, or became ISAG. Now, when I joined the group, I, I had some inkling that Yanir and myself were kind of thinking along the same lines that we could get rid of this virus if we if we wanted to. When I joined ISAG, I tried, I asked them, I was like, so what's the plan? You know, guys, what's the plan? I, I emailed a few people and got no response. And it was only kind of two or three weeks in that I realized that the plan was just to rerun the first lockdown, except this time we were going to do some green zones at the end and it was all going to be different. Now, once I found that out, I was like, I basically spent the next couple of months trying to convince them that there were better ways, that this wasn't going to work, that this plan was entirely dependent on uh, the people going along with it and the people were never going to go along with it, which they they recognized themselves in private, but wouldn't admit it in public. Um, and so I spent that time because it was that was basically our only hope. It was It was our last chance of actually making any kind of positive change. But it was like joining ISAG was it was like, you know, the ship is sinking. And then, you, you know, you run to the life raft and then you, you realize that the life raft has a massive hole in it, you know. And so I stayed with I stayed with ISAG as long as I could. And I tried to I tried to explain to them. But by the end of December 2020, it was clear then that there was just going to be no change. It was lockdown from here on out. And there, there was no there was no possibility. So I, I kind of I clung on as long as I could and I tried to make change where I could. But it was all for naught. I mean, Ivor, you're you're. You are essentially Greenwood, and I'll endeavour to say it, with the exception, obviously, of the preparedness uh, beforehand. You are essentially agreeing with what he's saying. So, well, there's one fundamental disagreement, which is worth highlighting because it's the kernel of the whole thing. In fairness, Dermot used the word in the podcast I came across last night, deadly, and he talked about ships going down. I will state that that's entirely inappropriate. Because the actual impact of COVID was exactly what was stated in February 2020. It was overwhelmingly an elderly person's disease, sad though that is. And it was, as a doctor in UK repeatedly said during 2020 on BBC and everywhere, it was within the envelope of a severe flu impact. So to call it deadly and ships going down is blatantly against the reality and all the data is in now. It was a severe flu impact. Sweden had an impact in the pandemic year of 0.05% excess mortality, overwhelmingly the elderly with no lockdowns and no masks. Even the UK, which was hard hit with an elderly demographic and severe metabolic health issues, I might add, they were 011 we cannot talk about ships going down or deadly because it's patently untrue by any reasonable person's definition. 
And I'll just add one other thing. The WHO, in collusion with Pharma in Geneva in 2009 during swine flu, they sat down and they agreed to remove severity clause from the pandemic definition. So when people ask me, was there a pandemic or are you a denier? Because some people deny it totally, which is funny. I say there was no pandemic by any sane person's definition of that word. So that's the most important thing for people to understand, you know. Now, just on the contact tracing, though, I would say, and people should read the book by Dr. Edgar Hope Simpson. Are you familiar with them, Dermot? Uh, no. Okay. Dr. Edgar Hope Simpson spent 50 years studying, and he wrote a book, uh, The Transmission of Epidemic Influenza and Coronavirus' Same Transmission Dynamics. And he noted that there was a huge enigma that the transmission of influenza did not follow a measles-like uh, simple transmission model. Therefore, you could never be successful in trying to track and trace it. It can spring up all over the world simultaneously on single latitudes, even before air travel. So there's huge science, which is well worth getting into, on the transmission dynamics. And I might say another thing, that he called out a hugely important point. Fluenza, influenza has no serial interval. Now, I'm going to make this simple. A serial interval is if you have measles and go into a house, 4.6 or 5.8 days later, the serial interval, a few people will get sick with measles because there's a direct transmission model. But he showed the data that influenza does not have that. And interestingly, in our own house. Is, is that not what we went on with? Do you remember the, the famous R number that we all became educated? It, we all became scientists over the space of two years. Because that is mathematics applied on underlying physics which do not properly exist. And that's where if you only focus on numbers and R numbers and epidemic models, which largely model what happens, they're missing the underlying physics of the profound nature of influenza transmission. So in my own family, I got to live out Hope Simpson's prediction and his data because my daughter got sick in February, I think, 2022. And I said, let's watch. So we were all sitting watching a movie with her and we all sat together because, quite frankly, we wanted a COVID cert, you know, from PCR positive and we couldn't catch it. And two weeks later, my son got it. And over the next 10 weeks, we all in our time, according to profound physics, we all caught it over 10 weeks, and it was just a demonstration. So this whole idea you can track and trace, the WHO are incredibly incompetent. And yes, they hedged by saying they didn't have data, but it's no excuse because they had plenty of data to come to a conclusion, and they did. And then they ignored that conclusion based on politics, and they all looked to China. And I'm going to make that point again. That's important. Um, Dermot, just in relation to you, you according to your misgivings at the start that we weren't prepared for it, but I want to ask you, knowing that we weren't prepared according to you, to what you're saying you know, and your theory on it, and we went into it, um, let's take, for example, before Christmas in the first year, which is, I'm losing track of time actually at this stage, I don't even know when COVID was now, 2020, and um, before Christmas 2020, what would you have done if you were Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin or whoever happened to be Taoiseach at that particular moment in time? What would you have done? Would you have just 
said, okay, there's nothing we can do about this. Let's just protect the vulnerable, tell the elderly to be careful, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you stand on masks, for example? Did you ever believe they were the right thing to do? Because according to the most recent published studies on these, masks and lockdowns, and they studied various countries around the world, made little or no difference whatsoever. So even the HSE admitted at the start that masks made no difference. Even Luke O'Neill at the start on The Late Late Show said that we were watching too many horror movies if we even thought we should wear masks. And then all of a sudden, it was wear masks. So where do you stand on masks, firstly? And secondly, what would you have done at that point? Would you just have opened the doors and said, listen, we just need to deal with it? Yeah, it's on masks. um, Well, I mean, my my policy... My preferred policy on masks is very simple. You, you, every country should have a national medical stockpile of, um, you know, PPE, multi-purpose medicines, vaccines, etc., and masks, high-quality masks. And at the slightest hint of trouble, you distribute the masks to GPs, clinics, um, pharmacies, health facilities, etc. If you want a mask, there's a mask there for you. If you don't want a mask, don't wear a mask. At the end of the day, whatever your pandemic strategy is or your, your epidemic strategy, it's not going to rise and fall on whether people wear masks or not. And overall, mask mandates are um, probably do more harm than good, I would say. Um, however, on, on the function of the mask, again, we kind of, we come back to kind of people's, I suppose there's two points here. One is that if, if the science was settled on masks, then it would be settled. The science is settled, for example, on gravity. If you pick up a pen and, and let it go, it's going to fall to the ground. We all know that. The science is not settled on most of the stuff to do with, with COVID-19. And, and or, but, but, but was, there not, was there not studies done on masks previous to COVID-19? in American hospitals when they were doing their studies in relation to influenza, where they got staff in the hospitals to wear them, where they noticed there was absolutely no difference, apart from obviously staff that were working doing operations and everything, because that's to do with droplets more so than uh, viruses, that that made little or no difference whatsoever. There were studies done for years before that. You don't, you, gold you standards, don't gold standard studies. Gold standard. Yeah, PCR was gold standard as well, you know. Um, yeah. You don't need to do studies on this stuff. Like, a mask is a, a manufactured, designed product, right? You can test it in a lab. You can assess what percentage of particles of a particular size will get through that and then you'll know okay to what extent it works or it doesn't work and then you can make the the choice of of, of whether you want to wear it or not it's it's part of again it, this is one of the kind of fundamental disagreements with uh iris philosophy versus mine he talks about science but really he doesn't understand where it's most that it's a particular kind of toolbox for a particular kind of problem it's not something that you just use everywhere um and that you need to have He's kind of religious about it. Like he needs to have a randomized controlled trial so that he can feel okay. Like, no, that's not how it works. So these studies that they, they do randomized controlled trials of masking in the community. And it's like, you're introducing a load of variables that don't need to be but there. But that's how, we do, well, that's how we do all. Okay, but that's normally how we do all sorts of studies where there are randomized controlled studies. Yeah, but yeah, sorry, I, yeah, I would just add to that bit and I'll come back to the other part of the question in a second with Deborah. So you, you can respond to that. I must say I'm impressed. This is astonishing. Like I said, 30 years going way beyond the sound bites, in fairness, Dermot, you're mentioning. The mechanistic studies, because that's what we call them, because we do RCT, we do design of experiments, we do mechanistic studies, which are the mass ones in the lab, and we do associational and comparative analysis, and I could go on all day. We do that in every complex problem that we, we manage, right? The problem with the mechanistic studies is they give you an insight into control conditions, and it's useful information but only when it's integrated along with the comparative analysis, the associational and the experimental analysis and many other modalities. So you're saying mechanistic studies alone, they're the thing. They're only a tiny piece of the pie. And you're saying that I say RCTs are the only thing when I've spent my whole life using every branch of problem solving. 
So, I give an example though. Here's North Dakota versus South Dakota. One had lockdowns and masks, and one had no lockdowns and masks, probably because of the politics of the governor. A million people in each, right beside each other, same culture, controlled for a lot of stuff, right? You cannot tell the curves apart of infection or mortality. I could multiply this by 10,000. We have myriad published papers that have looked at all countries, all regions, all counties in America, over 100k people, always the same answer. There is never a signal. You cannot do every bit of analysis possible to a human, empirical and beyond, come up with no signal and then maintain there is something there. That is religion. Okay, so Deborah, go ahead. Can I respond to that? So I'm glad he brought that one up. Yeah, um, in all of Ivor's presentations, he always conflates surgical masks, N95, FFP masks, and uh, mask mandates. And he puts them all together in masking in this, this catch-all category. That's not scientific. What he shows there is the two... Like, if I was to be most charitable, I'd say, yeah, what that shows you is that mask mandates, probably not going to work. But what that chart encapsulates is the mask mandate, which, you know, what masks are specified? We don't know. And um, what were compliance levels? We don't know. But, we're, yeah, but um, you would imagine there would be. You'd imagine there would be some. Yeah, but look, even if compliance levels weren't good, even if they weren't wearing the N95 masks, even if you know some people didn't bother their holes, I mean, you would imagine there would be some difference, wouldn't you? Sure. So what that shows? Oh, there's no the point. Mandate. Well, no, because all these people could be just having a bit of cloth over their mouth, which is not everybody knows that's not going to work. They're just doing whatever. We all seen. We we all seen the Americans. There was Americans with four or five masks on them, for God's sake. Sure, whatever, but this is just, this is the mask mandate. What he demonstrates there is suggests strongly, and I agree, that a mask mandate isn't going to work. However, in order to do science, and this is something that I don't think uh, Ivor understands in practice, is that if you're doing science, what you're doing is you're controlling for all the variables. And unless you have controlled for all the variables, it's not science. What you're doing is you want to have your input variable and your output variable. And you want to be able to say, if we change the input variable, this is what the change will be in the output variable. With all of this stuff, because it is a complex environment, because there are way too many variables, there are way too many variables moving all the time, you have too many options, it simply isn't possible to do the kind of science and to reach the kind of robust, um, reliable scientific conclusions that Ivor is, is projecting in these environments. We need other ways of doing this. Okay. He's simply I, yeah, sorry. I please respond to that. So now Dermot has completely flipped from saying you just use mechanistic studies to saying you need RCTs, proper experiments. But the hedge and the catch-all to get out of it is to say you can't do them. Well, Cochrane Collaboration have done three full revs over five or six years. And because they're a real science outfit, they actually use RCTs primarily, but they validate with associational studies. Good, Good way of doing it. They have come out unequivocally from RCT, and I think they had 80-plus randomized control trials. They're never perfect, but they're as good as it gets. And if you're familiar with forest plots, you can actually put all in one plot for all the studies, whether there was a positive effect or a negative effect or nothing, which is in the middle. It's one. Risk ratio of one. The forest plots are the biggest joke I ever saw. Because they show across the board, there is nothing but noise from all the experiments that, in fairness, good teams put a lot of effort into, and they did control as well as they could. We're not going to besmirch them. And the whole canon of decades of experiments on masks came up with that. 
These studies all across the world with comparative analysis, which is associational by its nature, so it's not perfect either. But when you look at all the world and produce countless comparisons between countries in comparative analysis, it comes back with the same. Every way you look at it, with every branch of science and modality possible for humankind, you come up with that. That's a fact. And anyone who wants to still say there's something there, that's religion. Okay, so, so I, 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 okay, we don't, we don't have too much time. So I, what I want you both to do, if you can give me a final analysis, Dermot, first, on where you believe, well, apart from obviously we know you believe you went wrong in the preparedness at the very start of it, but where you believe, even though we made a mistake at the start, according to your recollections, um, what we should have done. Should we have just, in the summer, or not even from the very, very start, should we have just turned around and said, let's, let's just run with this? Unfortunately, some people will die, uh, just like you know we do it every year with, with influenza, for example, where we four to 500 people would die on a regular basis. Was it just a case of we should have just ran with it? I'll give you a few bullet points rather than anything comprehensive. I think, first of all, we need to understand that this isn't a scientific environment. This is a, a risk management, a strategic environment. It's much more like war than it is like lab science. And so we need to use those methods of of kind of decision-making in uncertain environments rather than randomized control trials and whatever else. I think that's the first thing. As for, that's a kind of a philosophical thing. As for, you know, what we should have done January, block flights from China, block flights from anywhere where it was it was showing up. That should have been prepared and coordinated across the EU. Um, we should have done, we should have ramped up our testing capacity so that we could have done loads of testing in, in January and February, found out where it was. Um, testing helps to reduce transmission as well. Um, you asked before, before we got into it on the masks, about what we should have done in the second half of the year. Um, I, I just put out as an example, of a strategy that we might have used is or targeting so we we do we we have a, a selection of public health measures and we put them in place in such a way that we keep the or number below one but in such a way that the rest of society can pretty much keep going so we find a way to maximize suppression of the virus while minimizing the burden on the people and if we had had kind of more intelligent policy makers uh, when we opened up in june um that's that's something we could have tried uh, yeah, Ivor, you know, I, I would agree, certainly in relation to Neffet, it shouldn't have been a group of people who all just agreed with each other. Well, although some of them have come out more recently and said they didn't agree, but they weren't listened to. So we shouldn't have had just a small group of people who had a, you know, some of them may have had a financial interest as well, who just agreed with each other. Oh, sorry, can I just add on that, uh, that you brought up Neffet? I mean, the amount of, like, there should have been transparency, there should have been, their meeting minutes should have been a lot better, they should have been printed on time, there should have been much more oversight of Neffet. Um, I mean, that and, was and pretty much... And the media, Dermot, played a huge role in this, by the way. The media were almost like, you know, cheerleaders for Neffet. I mean, particularly RTE. I mean, the the very idea at six o'clock every evening, no matter what was happening in the world, it didn't matter who was being killed, many mass murders that was going on. I mean, that this became the number one story of the news. You know, 10 people died today, which was some sort of fantastic news. Uh, 10 people die or whatever it is, die every, I think it's 35 people die or more than that die every single day of the week and we don't announce it on the news. It was like some radio station from the middle of Kerry somewhere giving us the death notices every day at six o'clock. Sorry, Ivor, just finally, because I had to wrap it up. Yeah, it was. Uh, finally, Ivor, I, I, I mean, in relation to how you would summarise, obviously, Dermot's views of it. Yep. Okie doke. So I've got to hand it to Dermot, actually. You're the first person that managed to get me somewhat riled up. And uh, kudos to you. And one of the reasons is that in Ireland, they realized very early on, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that I was to be kept off the screen. And interestingly, I have an ISAG story really briefly. I think you'll like it. 
Uh, are you familiar with Zero Leaks, uh, Dermot? The uh, expose by Grit Media about the yeah. yeah. So they leaked a thousand plus, I think, emails, and I spoke to the reporter. And he said to me on the phone, the most astonishing thing about the thousand plus emails, and I went through them all late into the night. He said, I noticed around 100 in that none of these scientists were really talking about science. So I kept an eye out and I got to the end of the pile. They were only talking about lobbying and achieving their goals, which were whatever lockdowns and other nonsense. So that was interesting. Now, what does that tell you about ISAG? But I go to your points. So you mentioned, Dermot, January, we should have blocked flights. Well, you might be surprised to know that a cancer study in Italy showed that SARS-CoV-2 was in blood samples from September, the prior year. In Brazil, they found it in the human sewage in November 2019. The first people were afflicted in the USA in January and the UK, I think, as well. I could go on all day. Blocking flights... You might as well, like, just whistle or something. So that's one thing. The testing, we could have done more of. I would say, if I magically went back, and people should think about this, and I magically made testing not available, we could not have had a pandemic because we would have had seasonally busy uh, departments and hospitals, maybe a bit worse than usual. But think about the mortality impact at the end of the day and the actual ICU, Sweden with no lockdown, no masks, right? Their ICU only hit 65% capacity at the peak. So if we had no testing, theoretically, or in reality, in a sense, we would have had no pandemic. And we could have saved that 10 trillion we gave to the richest people on our planet and took from working class and and poor people. Well, at least Jared is nodding when you're saying well, that. Yeah, but remember, no, I'm not because I, I, it's classic. Hey, Jared, you, we you have our heads in the sand. That's no problem. No. We just pretend it's no problem. Yeah, but hang on, both of you. I, I, I remember. I remember. When the numbers when the numbers started dropping down and people were going, oh, it looks like they might lift the lockdowns. The numbers are starting dropping down. And I said, don't worry about it. They'll push for the testing over the next week. And sure, it was obvious. It was obvious. The more people you test, the more people you were going to find. Sure, I arrived into work one day. I was diagnosed with COVID-19. I felt perfectly fine. And I said, can I just go into the studio and do my show? They said, no, you have to go home. And I went home and I'm sitting at home for seven days, twiddling me thumbs with Nothing wrong with me. I, I had, it was probably the first in my life, I'm 60 years old, that I've ever heard the term uh, asymptomatic. So I, in other words, a disease you have to be told that you actually have because you've no symptoms of it whatsoever. I mean, God's sake, lads, if you're going to test more people, and you know, Dermot, you have to admit PCR testing wasn't the best way of doing things. The man who invented the test believed it was inaccurate, for God's sake. I mean, they were amplifying it so much that it would have found COVID if you were 40 miles away. So it was completely inaccurate. And the more people we were testing, the more people we were going to find. The more people we were going to find, the more they went into a panic and started testing more people. And it just became this kind of knock-on domino effect. Yeah, but let's remember, there's there's the thing itself, like testing, and then there's how it was used by the Irish authorities. So we shouldn't, you know, the thing itself has a lot of potential, but in the hands of a novice and, and Egypt's, then, yeah, it can be manipulated anyways. And I'm sure there was plenty of that going on, but I don't think that that um, is enough to say that testing itself is an inherently bad thing. And I, I might add, I, agree, I, I kind of agree in, in one sense, but I'd add testing in the hands of the people who, who managed to keep driving this kind of mass 
formation psychosis uh, for so long. Uh, testing in those hands was was unfortunately a disaster for the world. So and, the people and I, and who I do, I do believe when it came to the testing, they think there was a financial conflict of interest going on as well. But that's a whole other that's a whole other question. Listen, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed, Dermot Dorgan. I appreciate you talking to us today. Ivor Cummins, I appreciate you as well. All the best, guys.